right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 344. With that number, we're going to give a shout out to NWSL original Teresa Noyola. She earned 1,344 minutes over the first two seasons of NWSL. She played first with the Rain, then with Kansas City, and then with the Dash in their first season, scoring the first ever Dash game-winning goal and the first ever Dash brace in the same game, no less. She was the 2011 Mac Hermy Trophy winner out of Stanford. She led the Cardinal to its first ever NCAA title in women's soccer, along with several teammates whose name, names you might also recognize, Camille Levin, Chiamo Bogagu, Lola Bonta, Rachel Kwan. All right, so another episode. Um, got it out a little quicker than I anticipated, but not as quick as I hoped. This one is about the NWSL draft, the fairly recent U.S. national team games. So I spoke with Jordan Angeli, uh, who was on the draft desk for NWSL. We talked about the draft and also the national team games. And then I caught up with my friend Richard Laverty, based in the U.K., He's been covering women's soccer for a while. We talked about where England is right now, but the national team and the league as they're six months from that historic Euro win, six months till the next Women's World Cup. And of course, there's a Jen Splainer segment. This one, uh, go over what it means if you've been drafted and what it means if you haven't been drafted. So I hope you enjoy this episode. You can email me anytime with feedback at keeper at keepernotes.com. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's and at Keeper Notes. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Jordan Angeli, NWSL broadcaster extraordinaire. Jordan, <laughs> we've had so much soccer already and it's what, we're just two thirds of the way through January. It's, it's, it's a nice start to 2023. Yeah, you and I have had a lot of soccer because we watched a lot of video on college players who are coming into the draft. So I think it might feel like more soccer to you and I than right. it does to other people. But yeah, there's <laughs> been some, you know, and a couple of good national team games, a lot of movement within the league. So I would say the buzz around especially women's soccer right now and all the moves that have happened, the games, the draft. There, Yeah, there's been a lot in just 21 days in January. So let's start with the draft. So that was that was our first big event of the year. You and I were both involved in, and we had a huge draft pool, which you know we can mostly ascribe to the COVID bump. I had to, you know, like like the league kept asking, "Is this our largest draft pool ever?" I was like, "Well, I, I don't know from the early years, but I don't think we should publicize that too much because it's." We're, we're yeah. still dealing with the, hey, you had all these players that, that got to take an extra year. What was fascinating to me mm-hmm. was what more than half of our pool were working on their graduate degrees. If that yeah. doesn't tell you how smart soccer players <laughs> Are nothing, nothing does. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go to school for a couple extra years, you might as well get another degree yeah. and have the, the school pay for it. That's, that's my opinion. So yes, they were very smart to take advantage of that as well. <laughs> I, I think also we're going to potentially, and this is just hypothetical, we might see larger draft classes 
when you're talking about the full number, just because there are more opportunities in NWSL and there are going to be more opportunities with NWSL with all right. the talk around expansion and just the stability of the league. So players are going to see this as a way that they really can, you know, their four years of college, can I utilize these four years and try to get myself into a spot where Hey, playing at the next level is is an option where I, I don't think I think we lose a lot of players over the years just saying, all right, it's not it's not a viable option. I'm not going to be able to make a living playing as a professional soccer player unless I'm the top one percent. Right. Of the one exactly. percent as exactly. a U.S. national team player. You know, I I struggled as a professional women's soccer player to make any kind of money. So I understand that there were people that were turned away from that. And I don't think that that is the case anymore. So yes, there was a bump because of players staying in school for that extra option year. But I think maybe this is a trend we we potentially will see going forward, which is a good thing. That means more players are developing within our country. There's more opportunities and this game is really truly growing. Yeah. And you're, you're building that pool. And one thing that, you know, Laura Harvey said to us when we were prepping for the draft is how she feels like now when she's drafting players, she actually has time to develop them. They Mm. don't have to, you don't have to draft looking for someone that can start right away, which is, well, she doesn't, doesn't. (laughs) but but for the, for the most part, yes, don't have to put that burden on those, on those players that, Oh, if you can't handle starting right away, you're not, good enough because and more opportunities we've got bigger rosters mm -hmm. and we know the league is going to stay and they also have built in within and i don't know how long this will go on but the challenge cup is is seems like it's here to stay and it has a really good sponsor and there's good money on the line and there's good incentive for these players to play in it so there's more opportunities to get some of these players who you have been building up minutes and a little bit of experience right. in the women's cup and the women's um, champion cup. Is that what the ICC? women's is called? ICC? Yeah. ICC. Yeah. I'll take yeah. the women out of there. <laughs> um, and yeah, so against, you know, like Tigris. Exactly. So did, there's yeah. more opportunities to develop as well because of the um, increase in number of games. Yeah. I, I think Laura Harvey has definitely done a really good job of giving players opportunities. And sometimes it hasn't been her choice. I remember doing the women's cup last year and she had a lot of injuries and didn't, you know, just had to give these trust these players and it paid off for them. But yeah, this, this league is at a really good spot and it's good to see that on the field that these players are developing and getting better and getting to prove that uh, they belong here. I also think it's interesting to see more clubs sending younger players out on loan now that there's actually more places where you can send them and, you know, you can send them and they'll get minutes and that they're in a professional environment. You're not, you're not sending them to, you know, kind of an unknown Uh environment. So just, you know, all around we're seeing these, these changes very, very quickly. So with this draft, um, you know, basically 10 years to the month of the very first, end of yourself draft. Um, we had a lot of first evers and most evers and, and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> starting with obviously, you know, Alyssa Thompson, first to go straight from high school, youngest draftee, Angel City and putting putting almost every egg in that basket named Alyssa Thompson. I mean, what, what were your thoughts when you heard about that? Because we knew once they made those trades that were all contingent on her declaring for the draft, that she would be their number one pick. 
I think it has the potential to be one of the best moves in this league probably ever because of what I've seen just in the brief moments that we've seen from Alyssa Thompson is she has uh, poise about her as a young player that I don't think we've seen in a long time. We've seen players come out and have, um, you know, I don't want to say one dimensional, but have something really special about them. I think she brings multiple things, her ease on the ball, her vision, her speed. Um, She has a little bit of a bite. So I think she brings a lot of things that Angel City have definitely saw. And they said, okay, if we have the opportunity to bring someone in to strengthen our fan base within our LA community, that's already pretty strong. But to to start this idea, maybe on the women's side of these homegrowns of a player right. that grew up in L.A. and now is playing for an L.A. team. I, I really liked this move. I think it changed a lot for them as to what they could get in the draft. But then just, you know, a couple of days ago beyond the draft, they they signed, they uh, traded for Merritt Mathias, which I think is a really good trade for them. I think they were lacking at outside back. Yeah. Um, throughout the season last year. So then you start to see how the puzzle pieces for them beyond the draft come into play. But I really like this pick. And I think um, from what we've seen already with Alyssa Thompson and the, the show that they've put her around around her, that she seems pretty excited to be home. I just hope that there is a balance of, you know, this kid isn't going to solve every single problem that Angel City has, but can they give her the opportunity to express herself um, without the pressure of being like um, somebody who's going to have to carry the weight of the team? Yeah, they're starting to make some moves that I think show us that they learned a lot from mm-hmm. their inaugural season. Um, and, and I also feel like that she got to control where she went. Right. Yeah, which is I'm, nice. Normal yeah, players I, get I, to do that. Yeah. I'm sure she would have not entered the draft if yeah. he didn't know that, you know, she was going to get to go, go to LA. Um, and like you were saying about more people entering the draft, it, it's always good to remind fans that if you don't declare, even if you don't get drafted, you can't play an NWSL that first year. Mm-hmm. Right. And the point of that is to prevent all players just trying to go to one team, right? So, so it's about parity, which I know is still a re- really weird concept for anyone used to European football. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where that comes from. Um, speaking of players getting to play at home, uh, another big trade that happened on draft day, uh, Houston picking up Deanna Ordonez from North Carolina. She wanted to be in Texas. I remember when North Carolina played the Dash in Houston, last May, like one whole section was just her family. (laughs) So it's like, great. If, you know, if you can do trades like that, where, Hey, it makes the player happy. And I think North Carolina got a lot of good value from sending Ordonez Mm -hmm. to Houston, like, you know, all the better, but back to the draft, I want to ask you, like, when you're looking at those videos, what, what are you looking for? I mean, one, we know it's a really big pool. So you kind of have to focus on, okay, I'm going to guess these 50 or 60 are in the most demand. But how do you look at those videos? A lot of times, you know, we know videos put together by players. Well, sure, they're picking out their highlights, but what does that tell you? 
I look at a, a variety of things and it's not just watching video. It, similar to the coaches that you and I get the pleasure of talking to, Jen, is we also call a lot of coaches that have coached these players or coached against these players who might have a little bit better of an insight. So in those, the videos that I'm watching specifically, I'm just seeing positioning, where they're playing, what their tendencies are, um, how they strike a ball, the little things that I could see that maybe aren't just like, oh, you're scoring a goal. It's what's your movement off the ball? How, how do you connect a pass? Are you using different surfaces? All those things show me like the how well-rounded a player is. And mm-hmm. then I go and I talk to, you know, this, this last time I talked to Jerry Smith. I talked to Tom Stone, who's at Texas Tech. Jerry is at Santa Clara, my alma mater. I talked to Lori Walker, who's at Ohio State. I talked to Wes Hart, who's at Alabama. So just that think about all the regions of the country that I got to speak with. I tried to get as many conferences or as many different regions that I can and get insight on these players because these coaches see them every year for four years, most likely. And they, they say, all right, this girl, uh, there was a, I remember an outside back. I can't remember her name right now. She played at TCU. I don't believe she got drafted, but one of the big things that Tom Stone told me is every single year, this girl got significantly better at something. And so if she were to get drafted, I would have talked about her mentality. And this is how she approaches the game is she really focuses on one aspect of her game. And every single year she, she gets better at that. So it's stuff like that. That is a little bit different that I can offer as an analyst and also speak as a person who played in the league saying, if you have that type of mentality, this is why a coach would want you because they could help you mold into a better professional or whatever it may be. So yeah, I think on the field, I'm looking how well-rounded are they? And then uh, just get little insight from people who have seen them more than me of just like a little (laughs) video that I've seen um, on their highlight reel. But I do want to take a second and just say Uh none of this would be possible without you, Jen Cooper, because you <laughs> help us so much put a document together with all this information that the players submit to NWSL. And then Jen puts it in a really easy way for us to go and say, the mega right, spreadsheet. yeah, Izzy Dekilla. And I want to look at her highlights and it's right there. So I can get all that information quickly and um, efficiently. So, I mean, we are so I would say in debt to you, Jen, because (laughs) I don't know how I would do that. This job in particular, let alone NWSL season, if it weren't for you, because man, that is a lot of work you put into it. And it helps us so much be able to just be knowledgeable about each and every player. Well, and I'm in debt to you for not having to be on the draft desk anymore. Um, (laughs) Because I always felt there's a stretch for me, especially getting into the third and fourth round. I'm like, you're asking me about players I don't know anything about. I'm not like... You know, let me give you the historical nugget. That's you know, yeah. let let me show you. Which we got some from you this year, which was yes. really nice. And that's what that's what I enjoy. It's like, yeah, let me make a little you know two minute cameo. That's really all I need. <laughs> um, but but it's like, yeah. and and I love having been a part of all the draft broadcasts all the way yeah. back to 2016. Is seeing how it's evolved and developed yes. much much like the league. So mm-hmm. oh my god, to have an in person draft again. Oh, I forgot. So nice. I forgot how fun it was, how neat it was I to know. be at the convention, to see all those different people. And it was funny. I had some people 
from the league who, you know, weren't around the last time we had an in-person draft asked mm-hmm. me, like, will people really come? Like, oh, yes, people mm. will come. And people did come and props to Cloud9. Cloud9 9. was there. Oh, yeah, my Cloud God. Cloud9 that, that was screaming great. when they got Lyd Williams, like, so pumped. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like, Amazing. I'm sure there's more things we can do to make that just, like, a total yeah. party. Um, but, and, yeah, that, that and I, great. Yeah, it really did. And just, I have... Um, really good friends still from when I played uh, Nikki Krizik, who's now Nikki Phillips and Casey Nagara, who's now uh, Casey Lloyd and really national team players, really quality players at one um, championships in NWSL. And Casey was like, I couldn't believe what I saw. It's so much different from when we got drafted in like a tiny hotel room back in the day. But it is so cool, too, for us to know, you know, for so many years, us as players, we were like, okay, it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off, not for us, but for other players. And we really get to see that now visually, but also, um, you know, have players who are making a living doing this. And it, it feels good knowing that. Um, I mean, we were playing soccer, but it was a sacrifice. It was, there was a sacrifice of not, yeah. you know, being able to really be self-sustaining, I would say. <laughs> and here we are getting to talk about it as, you know, these old wash-ups and be really excited about where the league's at. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because when you think of the two previous leagues, you know, WSA didn't get to last long enough. WPS didn't get to last long enough. Thankfully, NWSL started pretty quickly following mm-hmm. the demise of, of WPS, um, you know, it, it's been a pretty rough ride, but the league is still around, right? Yeah, totally. And, and it's totally on, you know, on a swing upwards. Um, so, you know, I hadn't even thought about that, how satisfying that is, you know, yeah. for, for you guys of just like, it was worth it. All right, well, let's switch gears and talk about the two U.S. national team friendlies this week. Um, You know, they went down to New Zealand uh, to play New Zealand twice in two different stadiums, Uh both stadiums that are are World Cup venues. Um, You know, I've had people ask me, it's like, what do you get out of playing New Zealand? It's like, well, okay, let's put this in context. This is not a, a FIFA window, so... Most teams are not going to, you know, set up a friendly against you. I think it's a great way to start off the year because you're shaking off the holiday rust, right? Um, uh-huh. And you're getting to go, okay, you know, they know they'll be in New Zealand for their group games. You're playing at stadiums you're going to play at. And I heard that, you know, Vlaco had mentioned to the, the younger players, he's like, I want you to visualize playing in a World Cup in, in this stadium. So... It's probably not the be- the best competitive trip, but I think when you th- when you factor in all the other things that the trip brings, it's it's a good way to start the year. Let's not pretend that the United States women's national team is always playing against the top competition in the I world. Know. You know, they've until it's not like this year is any different than previous years. They play they play New Zealand, they play um, other teams who are not ranked top ten. So I think I understand where people are saying that about New Zealand and what do you get out of these games? But everybody in the world wants to play the United States, everybody in the world. And so there is always going to be opportunities to play teams that aren't the best teams. And I'm not saying New Zealand isn't, doesn't have an opportunity to get better, but they're 20, I think it said 24th in the world right now. 
But the biggest benefit of this is just what you were saying, Jen, is you take the plane ride, you do the travel within the country, you have um, a pretend base camp in Auckland. So you get to see what it's going to be like when you are there. And there's no better way than what Vlaco was just saying of visualizing yourself playing in the World Cup in this stadium than actually playing in the stadium (laughs) and getting to feel what it's like, um, you know, just getting yourself knowing, you know, the stands were a little bit different than some of the stadiums that they played in previously, a little bit farther away, you know, getting bearings as far as perception goes and um, your peripheral vision, uh, just understanding where you are on the field. I know that sounds like a small thing, but it can make you feel more comfortable the next time you go play in that stadium. I think there's a lot of benefits for going to play there. And one of the other benefits, I think, and we saw it at times, especially during the first game, is the United States haven't been great at breaking down a low block and breaking down when a team sits in a a tight space. So they have to figure that out. And you have to play against teams who are, are going to do that to you because the U S is good when there's space and they can run and they can be, um, you know, show their, technical ability alongside their physical ability in open space. And sometimes that happens more when you're playing a team who's better because they can match you up like for like. So there is more, a little bit more space, but when a team sits in and they're in a block, how are we going to break it down? And I think that the first game especially was a good, okay, let's knock off the rust, but let's change things at halftime and be better. And the second game we saw even an advance on that. So um, there's a lot of positives to take out of playing a team like New Zealand, but the biggest is travel awareness of where you're going to be playing a world cup. Um, You know, and probably for these girls, just knowing where your good coffee shops are, you know, I've been (laughs) on those those trips before and you got to know where you're going to go to get (laughs) And also, coffee. also playing in front of fans that are not rooting for you. Totally. You know, because yeah. um, yeah. in sure... a month at the She Believes Cup, there's going to be a lot of people screaming. Exactly. For exactly. Alex and Morgan I'm sure the and Kiwis, Trinity Rodman. You know, and... Yeah, I'm sure the Kiwis were excited to see, you know, the defending champs, but oh, they yeah. were there. They were there for the football ferns. And yeah. props to New Zealand setting a new record for attendance for a home game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like. Yeah. We, we don't think about that. They're about, about to break that. that in six months, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's going to be great. So uh-huh. so tactically, what, what did you see in these two games that you liked, whether it was mm-hmm. an overall view or something specific about a player's performance? I'll start overall because I think there were a few different things that I noticed that I really liked and maybe a couple things that I think can tweak. So let's go overall what I like. Vlaco has played pretty much in a 4-3-3 with a lone holding midfielder since he took over, which works really well for this team at times, but I think also limits them in moments, especially centrally in the midfield of like pulling, pulling apart a structure if it's pretty tight there centrally. That's why we often see Lindsay Horan sliding into the channel, into the outside space to try to pull a central player away, which, which works great. Um, But I think when you do that, you also limit yourself on who you have in the channel and who works really well in the channel. So by, by switching to more of, I would say a four, two, three, one, but really it was a six with an eight and a 10. And um, I think you could see it more in the second game with Sanchez as the 10 Rose Lavelle was the eight um, in the first half. And then you had Andy Sullivan in that sixth position. 
Um, what I liked about that is when the United States were building up, Rose Lavelle and Andy Sullivan were playing closer to the center back. So what that did is it engaged the two central players for New Zealand and then opened up the space that they wanted to work through by Ashley Hatch, by Ashley Sanchez, that central space in between the midfield and the back line. It's exactly where the first goal comes from. Um, it's Sullivan who pulls back in this this last game. Sullivan pulls back towards the center backs. And then as Crystal Dunn notices her movement, Dunn plays a great entry ball into uh, Sanchez, who's floating in that space. And then you have that beautiful combination that all spirit fans are going to just be drooling over between Sanchez, Rodman and Hatch. So it was little movements like that, that I think playing with two a little bit deeper lying midfielders can really help this United States team because then the space is in front of them. They can run into the space and be a little bit more effective. So I think that would be the biggest thing that I noticed. And then defensively, instead of defending in a four, three, three, block that's from the back to the front with th- their three players up front they actually were defending in more of a 4-2-4 which also can look like a 4-4-2 block mm-hmm. um i liked that a lot because with the two players up front it was hatch and sanchez in this last game so they put a push a central midfielder up to help that front line of pressure if the ball goes to the wings then you're pushing your outside wingers onto those outside backs and really pressing them um, and putting them under pressure in a moment where they have to make a decision. So I liked that because oftentimes that's where the United States were then winning the ball back was off those outside backs, just trying to clear space or trying to connect a ball where the United States had funneled it into a place where they could win it back. I liked that change. So those are two tactical um, changes that the that Vlaco made, and I think that it could really help them. Maybe maybe not just when they're playing against a four four two, but it really worked well against New Zealand's four four two. Well, and when I think about the players who are, you know, slightly injured, so miss this camp, or in some cases long term injured, you know, it's it's incredible when you look at the twenty nineteen Women's World Cup roster and see who's not available, you know, right right now. Um, That being said, we have such incredibly deep pool and I'm so glad that Vlotko has gotten all of these young players um, as many minutes as possible. Right. Uh So, so that you're, you're prepared either way. I mean, he mentioned this week that, okay, I've got it down to a pool of 30, 32 and and it's not hard to figure out, you know, who that is, but there's so many question marks um, you know, with injuries. And, you know, I want to ask you as a player who's, you know, had to deal with injuries, like, you know, how do you, how do you handle that mentally? How does the coach try to figure out? It's like, well, maybe we get her back, Uh you know, at this point, maybe we don't. I mean, it's like, it seems like there's so many moving parts to it. For the players that are injured, you're just doing anything you can to get back on the field. Cause once you're back on the field, you're going to have the opportunity to prove that you should be back with the national team. And so I I do think that what's hard is there's not very many games for the national team until the world cup begins. I think they only have seven now, or that was seven total. So it's it's three for, she believes there'll be two in April. And then the next window after April is basically the lead up to the world cup. So they've got five 
Yeah. I've got five before he names the roster. Right. Okay. So if you can get yourself back on the field, there is still some leeway. And with those players that you're talking about who are injured, it's not as if you don't know that they're going to fit into the team. Like these That's players true. have been with yeah. the team and they know how to fit in and they know the culture, they know how to perform. So I think that's a big benefit from them, but they're just trying to get themselves back on the field. And you can't really put in my, how I looked at it is like, you can't put your, the pressure of yourself of like, Oh, I got to, get back to the national team. It's just like one little thing at a time, because if you put that big over, you know, that's a heavy weight to carry. Um, if you just focus on the the day-to-day stuff, as we just saw Lynn Williams do very well day-to-day, how do, how can I get better knowing that the end goal is to be with the national team? You know, that, that daily focus really helps you not get overwhelmed by, okay, I got to get back for a world cup. Yeah, I mean, he's got, Vlaka's got a lot of big decisions to make. And mm-hmm. sure, we've only got five games for them to play before, um, you know, he names a roster. But that roster will, I'm assuming, would be named early, mid-June, right? Yeah. What I like about that is unlike previous years where the, the last two Women's World Cups started basically first week of June, right? So they figured out their roster by mid-April right as the NWSL season is starting. Unlike this year with the World Cup being a little bit later. And yeah, why the, is it later? Uh, it's a weather reason because you're basically playing in Australia, in New Zealand's winter. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I, did, I figured that might be the case, but I didn't know if that was... Yeah, they didn't want to put it dead smack in the middle of winter, so it's no, like it's nice winter coming into you know spring. Um, <laughs> but it means that the NWSL season will actually come into play. That yeah. if if you're on the fringe, and with the the NWSL season starting in late March, you actually have eight, mm-hmm. nine, ten weeks to yeah. make a case. If not playing for the national team, playing for your club, right? Yeah. And and Vlaka has made it clear that club performance is is yeah. a determining factor. And it makes a difference club performance now because there are just the structure of the national team contracts is different. So there. Right is a lot more movement in and out of camps, which makes the emphasis on club performance more and players really truly believe that they can make an impact. So I, I like that. Um, and it, it's a benefit to, I think, every team at the World Cup is a little bit later because you get some more games after what's been a pretty difficult couple of years with the lack of games and then a lot of games all at once to, okay, can we get into a little bit steady of a rhythm within our club season? I think maybe NWSL players might have a benefit because they won't be too exhausted. They'll be kind of in peak form um, going into the world cup. I think there's a lot of benefit at the timing of when the world cup is and the fitness level and just the performance of some of these players within NWSL. Yeah, more time is always better, you know, as we kind of saw, you know, when the Qatar World Cup for the men, just that short run up, what there was like, what, 10 days from when mm-hmm. leagues ended to when the World Cup started, just like, now you right. kind of need, you kind of need that extra time. Um, and of course, thankfully, the Women's World Cup will be a more traditional World Cup schedule, uh, you know, 32 teams for the first time, but you know, not the compressed schedule that we saw in Qatar, because obviously there's going to be travel days involved. But right. I'm just, you know, really excited at, at how this is going to play out. And I love that, you know, even though going up to 32 means you're going to have, you know, maybe some blowouts in some of the groups, group games, 
but you have to finish second in your group to advance. And mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's like, I always yeah, like tournaments that. That, that, are, that are structured that way because it, yep. it means the best teams really advance. Yep. And it gives, I mean, teams that have never had the opportunity to play in a world cup, the opportunity. And we have seen, that that's sometimes all it takes to really get some money flowing into these teams and for them to actually develop players. So I think it'll be, it'll be a little difficult maybe this first time for some of these teams, but I think there is a really, it's going to set a good foundation for them going forward. Hopefully well, my, that's the hope. my, my favorite underdog for this world cup already is the Philippines. Cause they went out and they hired Alan Stachik from, uh, you know, who had coached Australia. I was like, good on you. Go pick, you know, someone with... Gosh, Jen's so prepared. She already has an underdog. I love it. This is exactly what I'm talking about, people. She already knows her underdog seven months before it's happening. Okay, well, it's a little easy when your roommate is a hardcore Filipina who is constantly talking about the Philippines national team. But not not only did they, you know... There's there's bias there. Yeah, they, they got a good coach but they've been actively getting as many games as they can, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as yeah, we, used so to see, we used to see those fringe teams kind of, well, they'd qualify and they wouldn't do anything between qualifying and the World Cup because they couldn't afford to or just would, you know, would choose not to. And now we're seeing, it's like, uh, or like Randy Waldron in charge of Nigeria. I mean, he's gotten them games left, right, all over the place. Of course, he's gotten criticism in the, uh, Nigerian press is like, oh, we've never lost this many games in a year, and I'm thinking you've never played this many games in a year. <laughs> like, like this is great. This this is actually how you yeah. prepare teams. And um, you know, me being me, I wanted to put all of the uh, February window games into my Google Calendar, and man, it took forever because everyone's actually playing games. That's sweet. Um, that's awesome. So if that's not a sign of progress, hmm. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for taking time. uh, Of course. Talk draft, talk national team. And thanks for all your great work on the draft. Because like I said, I am so happy to be, you know, the man behind the curtain, as they say, next to the draft table, doing all my machinations on my computer, Mm -hmm. as opposed to having to. Well, good. I'm so happy to be on the draft table. We're both happy then. It's it's a signed deal. We're just going to keep doing that for now until whenever we can't take it anymore. Deal. <laughs> Done deal. All uh, right. Well, thanks for having luck. me, Jen. Good luck. Uh, let's say good luck to both of us and all the national teams this year. Yes, I love it. Time for a little Jen's planning. So let's talk about what it means to be drafted and what it means to declare for the draft and not be drafted. So for the 48 players who were selected by NWSL clubs in Philadelphia, they are guaranteed a spot in preseason camp with those clubs. They're not required to report. They can choose, you know, hey, I'm going to retire. Hey, I'm going to go to Europe. They can't go anywhere else in NWSL, but they are guaranteed a spot in that preseason camp. And they can even delay arriving for training, say, maybe they want to finish out the spring semester, complete a degree. Now, once the draftee joins training, there's a 60-day window for the club to sign that player. They can also trade that player's rights. They can sign the player and trade them, or they can waive the player so the player can pursue other opportunities. So draftees who are ultimately not signed and 
not waived in that 60-day period, their NWSL rights remain with that club until January 30th of the third year following the draft in which they were selected. And I know that's a lot of verbiage. Bottom line, their rights are held by that club for a couple of years. Generally, though, it seems like draftees are either signed or waived. And once they're waived, they can go to other clubs uh, and try out in NWSL. Now, being drafted does not guarantee you a contract. It just guarantees you that 60-day window to try out for the team. And during that window, the player's housing, insurance, per diem, et cetera, is taken care of. Um, so, you, you know, you've got a safer spot than those who are undrafted. Now, for those who declared for the draft but were not selected, I bet several got calls right after the draft inviting them to preseason camp. And, of course, all of those players are eligible to – you know, reach out to teams directly, go to open tryouts, you know, hopefully get an invitation to preseason camp. So as we start to see preseason rosters come out, you'll notice players designated as NRI means non-roster invitee. Um, So they've been invited by the club to compete for a roster spot. Now it's important to note the players coming directly out of college They want to play in NWSL. They have to declare for the draft to be eligible their first year out of school. Um, That's why you see a lot of players declaring who, you know, on the surface might not seem like an automatic draft pick. But if if they want a chance to even try out through open tryouts, they got to declare. Now, players not drafted and who still have NCAA eligibility they can return to school and continue to play, but only if they notify their college college's athletic director within 72 hours of the conclusion of the draft. So a lot of little details. If you're curious about any of those, you can find the draft rules as a download on the NWSL site. Just go to nwslsoccer.com slash draft. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Rich Laverty, uh, reporter at large from the other side of the pond. Um, Rich, I wanted to get you on to talk English soccer. Um, you and I haven't talked in a while and something really big happened between now and the last time we talked. So let's start with last summer, England winning the Euro at home, beating Germany in that very tense final. Yeah, it was. Um, it's still a little bit crazy to think that we're now closer to the the World Cup, I think, than uh, than the European Championships. It's gone so quick. Um, yeah, it was it was unbelievable, like to be a part of it. Obviously, from from the media point of view, and to be at all the games, and to be at the final, and and to be at the the big event they held in in London the day after. And yeah, I think it's one of those at the time you don't really kind of. It's funny because, like, you know what it's like, Jen, going into a tournament, whichever nation you are, but, you know, especially if you're a nation that's maybe got aspirations to win, like England do, and obviously like the US does, and and many others, you sort of talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, you know, could this be the year we're going to win this year? And then it actually happens, and it's a bit like, did that actually, like, just happen? Because, <laughs> you know what it's like, like, it's, it's crazy because the game's done, and then it's like you don't have any time to think because it's, 
it's reaction, it's it's interviews, it's press conference, it's mix zones, it's it's analysis. You know, it, it was. I think I went to bed at about three o'clock in the morning the night after the game because I was just writing, 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 and and probably didn't have that much time to enjoy it. So, yeah, I think coming out of it now and it's, it still feels a little bit strange in a way that it just sort of happened and it happened in a very un-England way. Like it, it kind of <laughs> without much drama. Like, do you know what I mean? They, they, they kind of made us sweat a little bit in the quarterfinal. They made the semifinal remarkably simple. And then obviously, yeah, the final went to extra time, but you know, we always knew it was going to be a tough game, a tight game. You know, when you're in the final, it, it, that's going to be the toughest match. So, but yeah, one one, you're think, thinking, oh, here we go. You know, it's going to be late heartbreak or penalty shootout and things like. And it wasn't. They just won and there the were game. no penalties. <laughs> no, they won the game. They held out. There was no like late heart. It was, yeah, and it kind of summed up probably Serena Vigman's time with England at the minute. You know, everything sort of went to plan throughout the tournament, and I think it was sort of it, it happened in such a way that it does feel a little bit normal and. And yeah, that's probably the weird thing that it probably shouldn't feel normal because we waited for so long. But yeah, I think um, I think everyone's just really, really embraced it during the tournament. Like it was huge, and and you know the girls have been brilliant since. You know, a lot of them obviously now, certainly the key players, or you know, the maybe the more well-known ones have done so much media, and obviously Jill Scott went off to the jungle and did I'm a celebrity and things like that. So you know, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I think it's just been. It, I think it's changed. I don't think it's changed. Maybe things on the pitch, like the WSL, is still the same product. It still has top players and top teams, and you know that doesn't really change. But I think off the field, like you know, there's obviously been more attention, and and yeah, all round was just uh, was just an amazing, amazing summer to be a part of. So for WSL going into the fall, I mean, I, I read a lot of different articles about, you know, an uptick in season tickets sold and attendance and, you know, the games that I can pick up here um, in the States. It seems like, you know, the crowds are bigger and more importantly, they're more engaged, right? Like they, 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 they seem louder. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the attendances have definitely creeped up um in certain places i wouldn't be able to say for sure off the top of my head if it's completely across the board but yeah you definitely say definitely seen a a sustained sort of particularly with england like england games now i think wherever you put england games they will sell out um we've obviously got the arnold clark cup coming up next month and and i think one of those is sold out and, and i think the other two are quite close and I think you could put England at Wembley probably every game and, and they'd be, you know, either a sellout or close to a sellout. But yeah, I think certainly wherever you take England now, because they're the ones that are the most recognisable, you know, they're the players that that everybody saw lift the European Championships, maybe the WSL. There's maybe still another step to go from a sort of marketing point of view, you know, certainly with some of the, the lower clubs or the clubs that maybe don't have the England players and things like that. But yeah, de- definitely crowds are going up. Um, we're still a long way off, you know, filling stadiums every single week. And, and whether that ever happens, you know, in terms of across the WSL, where you have six games every single week and you have six sellouts, I don't think we're, we're close to that yet. But the attendances have gone up, you know, in both the Super League and the Championship. And, and I don't think that's a, a huge surprise. I think 
it's sustaining it. You know, that's what it's all about. Right. I think coming back of the Euros and the summer and the nice weather and everything, you know, there's always that that run. And to be fair, that happened in, in 2015 and that was eight years ago and that was a bronze medal, you know, and suddenly the crowd went up and up and up. And, and then after a few weeks and a few months, it sort of starts to dwindle back down a little bit. And that probably happened here, but obviously it's, you know, it's winter at the moment. It's freezing cold, you know, it's been <laughs> like the last two weeks. So... It's not the most family friendly when it's a sport that sort of caters towards, you know, having this family friendly atmosphere that's changing in in some places and you're getting a bit more partisan support, you know, again, particularly with the top clubs. And yeah, it's just been, it's not been all positive. There's still things, you know, that need improving about the game and the sport all around the world. You know, we've seen it in America with with so many, you know, bad things in, in NWSL and that hopefully now has, has righted itself. And there's things here, you know, issues. Because the game's still growing. Like, we still, we say it as if the game's now where it should be. There's, there's, you know, there's so far to go compared to compared to anything else. So, you know, it's it, there's always growing pains, but it's definitely going in the right direction. And if you can go and win a major trophy like England did, that's a, a very nice little sort of, handy boost every now and again. Yeah. And you can't just flip a switch and suddenly all the crowds are there and suddenly everything's, um, you know, on parity with, uh, you know, what the men have when, you know, we know how old English men's soccer is, right. It's, it's the oldest really, (laughs) you know, in in the world. And, and they didn't start out having crowds of 50, 60,000 and, you know, these immaculate stadiums. And so it's, you know, it, it's a building process towards that. And, you know, the excellent thing for England, as, as you mentioned, is the national team. They're so well known now that you can have those games at Wembley and they'll sell out. I mean, when they announced that England was going to be hosting the U.S. women last October, what that that sold out in a day or something. I mean, it was amazing. Um and then England will host uh, Brazil at Wembley in April for the, what do they call it? The Finalissima. Yeah. Uh, so it's the, you know, the Copa America champion and the Euro champion. Um, you know, so great to, to see things like that. Um, and I, and I wonder, you know, when we think about England's performance in the last two women's world cup, you know, making the semifinals ending up in the third place game, both times, um, two different journeys, right? Um, and here's a journey under a coach who has made the final before. Um, you know, so how do you think that, you know, this World Cup could play out differently for them? What what do you see different about this English squad compared to 2019, 2015? Uh, I think the manager is a huge um, turning point. Not Not necessarily in terms of, things on the pitch but I think her attitude and her approach off of it has been huge like and obviously you know we don't live it we're not there every minute on camp but you know everything the players say and and everything that they seem to feel comes off the way Serena speaks to them the sort of belief that she instills in them that they can win and I think she just kept it very very simple Um, I think she treats them with the utmost respect she has that sort of typical Dutch bluntness with them where, but I think they kind of appreciate that, you know, and uh, I've sat in enough Serena press conferences now where, you know, if you get two words out of her, you've done very well. And that's not because she's not <laughs> polite. 
she's very polite, but she just doesn't give very long answers. You know, I think a lot of questions she's quite bemused by because I think it's just the way she is. And, and I think she's like that with the players where she doesn't say things bluntly in a nasty way, but she tells them what they need to hear. Um, and I think she's been very honest with some of them. She's made big decisions, you know, obviously left the, the long-standing England captain out of the squad for the Euros last year. And, you know, she stuck with her team. You know, people were saying, oh, do this, do that. And she stuck with the same starting eleven, pretty much the same subs at the same times of, of every game. She stayed true to her her philosophy and her way of playing and, and what she wanted to do. And, and she got the players, even the ones that didn't play a minute, on side because she was honest with them. She said, this is your role. This is what I need from you, you know. And I think she's just brought a completely different attitude to the national team um, in terms of now how the players approach it, in terms of their confidence. And you could see that during the Euros. Like, it never really... It never crossed over to an arrogance, but there was a confidence. You could feel it. And, and I even felt it rub off on on us you know when suddenly you can tell like you you know you know when you go and speak to the u.s players that, that you know and that you've covered for a long time you know these people really well like there's players in the england squad i've known for 10 years and you interview them all the time and and i think you can tell if they're feeling good or not i think in previous tournaments sometimes you feel like they're putting it on a bit they're saying what they have to say in this tournament, you genuinely got the feeling that they were at complete sort of, completely as warm, completely at peace with where they were, with what they were doing. They had their own ways of dealing with it. They blocked out all media. You know, they never, they didn't read papers. They didn't read websites. They didn't read social media. They just stayed in a bubble and listened to what Serena and the staff were telling them. And, you know, they rode their luck. Like I said, you know, the Spain game, they were five minutes away from, going out and, and probably on the balance of play, Spain would have deserved to win that game. But, you know, and I said it afterwards, that was a game that maybe England in the past would have lost. And right. same with the final, you know, when, when it went 1-1 and, and you think, you know, you know, momentum shifts a little bit. Again, maybe in the past, England would have lost. But I think there was just this insane belief throughout of, we're going to win. You know, we are going to win this. And and I, I felt it. I, I genuinely felt it. And I'm, a sort of typical pessimistic English person. Like I always think it's going to go wrong because every time I've watched England over the years, it has gone wrong, you know, <laughs> and it goes wrong in like the most spectacular ways possible. You know, in 2015, we scored a, a 90th minute on goal in the semi-final. In 2019, we missed a penalty five minutes from the end and, and then had a player set off after that. And that, you know, same with the men as well, tends to be it all goes wrong. And, and it just didn't. It just never did. And and I think with every game, the belief just went up and up and up. And, you know, Serena never got carried away. They never got carried away. The media got carried away. But the players never let that get to them because they blocked it out. And, yeah, I think it was just a really different mindset, a really different approach of someone that... I think that was the massive thing. They hired someone that had won. Like, obviously, Phil Neville had won things, but in a different scenario and obviously in, in the other side of the game and... and as a player rather than a manager, whereas Serena came in and, and you're sort of thinking, well, if you want to win the European Championships, you can't really do a lot better than hiring the head coach that won the last one. So <laughs> I think it was just the whole the whole approach. I can't wait for the World Cup. I think the World Cup's going to be going to be brilliant. I mean, I think England have a chance. Obviously, you go in as the European champions. You're going to have 
a chance, but Europe's got some incredible nations and then you throw back in the US and you throw back in Canada and, you know, obviously the host, Australia. Yeah, I think it's going to be a an unbelievable World Cup. I can't wait for it. I really don't have a clue who's going to win. Like, no disrespect. It's so open. It's, it's, no, it's, it's so of, open. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, no disrespect. It's kind of refreshing not thinking the USA are just going to turn up and beat everybody like that you do at the last couple of World Cups. I do think the USA have got a great chance, but I think it is as open as as it's, it probably it's, ever has. It's more fun um, when all the games are competitive, right? Like, of course I want the US to win, but I, I still remember sitting in, in Vancouver for the 2015 final and just like, they're up 4-0 after 16 minutes. It's like, this isn't a final. <laughs> well, I remember sitting in the, in the press box in 2019 um, and because I was working for our game magazine, I was actually sat with all the US journalists uh-huh. rather than the English journalists. So I was sat with Brandy, my editor. I had, I think, Steph Yang on, on my left. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, Grant Wall, obviously, uh, you know, God bless him, and, and Meg Linehan and people like that. And like, I couldn't believe like, I'd never sat with, like, the US journalists before at a game. And, like, they were all so pessimistic. <laughs> and, I was, and I was just like... You do know, like, the rest of the world just thinks you're going to win. You and I have talked about this before, too. Just, yeah, just like, you guys are so weird. They were like, no, no, like, England have got a really good team. And I went, yeah, yeah, we have, but you'll win because you always do. <laughs> and like, you just have a – and that, that's a little bit like what it's like with England now where you have that just constant belief and confidence because they everything was there. You know? Yeah, they had the, you know, players that – was it the, the absolute best squad? You know, it was one of the best squads, absolutely, in terms of back in 2019, the US. But I think it was that, again, that just everything you heard the players say, you know, whether it was Rapino, whether it was Morgan, whether it was Juliet, whoever, you could just hear it in their voices that they just absolutely believed they were going to win every game because they'd done it before. Whereas with England at that point, you didn't get that vibe. Um and I remember saying, like people like, no, England are going to give us. And I said, yeah, we will give you a good game, but you'll win. <laughs> and they won. <laughs> so, that, that, but like, I remember sitting and in the press. it'll be different. Conference. So it'll be different this summer. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm psyched I'm that it's a 32 team tournament, you know, so you I have to, you I'm have to finish it. second to advance out of the group, which I think always makes it more competitive. Obviously the group stage will have some interesting lopsided scores because we'll have, you know, several first timers in the World Cup. But I'm also excited about seeing different teams, right? And it seems like there's so many injuries um, from the last several months that, you know, there could be a lot of players that we're not going to see, and that could affect, you know, how strong certain teams are, right? Um, yeah. But so much, so much talent out there. And yeah, I, and I'm excited too that. We're going back to a normal World Cup schedule, unlike mm. the compressed Qatar schedule, right? Where, I mean, geez, working that, you know, in Qatar, I don't, I don't know how any fan could really absorb four games a day for eight day, eight, eight days straight, right? Like, and there was no off day between group stage and round of sixteen. So I, I, I was looking at the Australia New Zealand schedule, I'm like, yes, this is how a World Cup is, where it's kind of spread out and you've got those rest days and and because there's it's just gonna be awesome. I mean, I mean we're we're both kind of already drinking the drug of oh, the women's World Cup. Yeah. 
And and for first time for a World Cup to be in Australia, New Zealand, and and all of that. And I feel like both of those countries are really stepping up. Um, you know, it may sound like a small number, but the fact that New Zealand got twelve thousand people out for both of the friendlies against the U.S. last week, and those, those are record breaking crowds, right? It's like you know, that's that's how you do it. You know, and I'm sure Australia's games next month, uh, you know, so they're hosting their own four-team tournament. I'm sure those will be really big, too. Yeah, I think that... Sorry, did you want me to say anything? No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think they obviously, like, obviously, yeah, that experience we've had of, of hosting a tournament is is huge. And, and I know Australia, there's already some talk of the first game being moved to a bigger stadium because there's been so much demand, not just from Australians, but from Ireland as well. I think Ireland are going to take a lot of fans over and there's quite a big Irish population in parts of Australia. And, and yeah, it's great to see. Like, I think hosting a tournament is is huge. You know, in the women's game right now, if you can get a, a tournament, then it's happy days because people will embrace it. You know, if you take a tournament, any major tournament to a country and you have that kind of carnival atmosphere then I think people are going to embrace it. I hope it's not too affected by injuries. Like you say, we're having a bit of a a spate of them. Obviously, England have lost one of their key players. The Netherlands have lost one of their key players. I think the US have just got maybe a couple of theirs back, but I know you've had a few out pretty yeah. long term. Well, it's uh, still, you know, big question about Sam Mewis and, you know, lots, yeah. of, lots of players whose fates are kind of undetermined. Do you know where, what, where Julie Hurts is at? I, I think that's the question most U.S. fans are you asking. Seen me for like yeah. two years. Yeah, so she hasn't played since the Olympic bronze medal match. Um, she gave birth to her first kid in August. Uh, the last that Vlad Kononoski said was just like, you know, she needs more time. So I'm sure she's just coming back on her her own timetable. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be a very different... Yeah, your depth is US. decent, though. I, yeah. I was at Wembley in... November, whenever it was when we played the US, and obviously, like Alex Morgan was out injured, and Mal Pugh pulled out just before the game. Taylor Korniak was out injured, and you're thinking, okay, you know, great, yeah, the NWSL top scorers out, and you know, Mal Pugh, who'd been like one of the top scorers and the top assisters through the season, was yeah. out, and then they turned up, and there's Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman and yeah. Megan Rapino, and you're just like, oh my god, like they just don't <laughs> go away. These this country, they and just Megan Rapino was a sub. They have these brilliant young players ready to take over for from Rapino and Morgan and Tobin Heath, Kristen Press, etc. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think the depth is what could could really help you know the U.S. next summer. Um, but you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm I'm really interested in seeing the teams that have never been to a Women's World Cup or haven't been in a while, mm. right? Like Denmark's back in for the first time in a while. Ireland. Um, I'm glad you brought up Ireland. Um, I'm sure, you know, by, by proximity that, you know, you're hearing a lot about, you know, what's going on with them. And they seem to be investing in the women's game in terms of on the national team level in a way that, uh, you know, they hadn't always before. And they they came really close last cycle to qualifying. Um, so really pleased to see that, especially for Denise O'Sullivan, who's been in NWSL since 2016. Um, but it's just, yeah, like, like that, that new depth. And I feel like you could always put a few more European teams into the women's world cup to replace maybe the weaker African or um, Asian 
countries, right? But of course, they try to keep it pretty balanced. Um, but I think, you know, one of the advantages the European soccer has that I don't think any other confederation is, is ever going to have is so many countries of relatively similar population size. Obviously, I'm not counting, you know, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, you know, that kind of stuff, but and easy to travel back and forth, right? So Africa, huge, you know, still a lot of those women's teams being developed. Asia, oh my God. And, and then like Oceania, like you've got some serious travel in there. And then you have the CONCACAF issue of three really big countries and then all the others are really small, right? So I, I love that UEFA is, you know, whichever teams come out of UEFA in the Women's World Cup, it might not be the same ones every time, but, you know, you can see the investment that's been made uh, across the board by UEFA, um, not just the top federations. But but you're seeing it from you know the, the home front. So what do you see? Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think Europe is always it's just, it's a massive football continent. You know, like the the whole like almost every nation you know lives for for football. So I, I don't think it's a surprise that that so many are investing in in women's football and, and there's a few nations that came very close to qualifying that were absolutely nowhere like five years ago. They were the teams that were getting beat seven, eight, nine nil, you know, and 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 now they're they're not quite there, but they're pushing it. And, you know, Ireland, like you say, is a great example because maybe on paper they don't have the players that when you look at maybe the Scotland squad or the Wales squad, um, you know, you look at Wales and people like Jess Fishlock and Hayley Ladd and Sophie Ingle, and, and you look at Scotland and Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert, Kim Little, you know, people like that. And Ireland, like you say, maybe have maybe one or two players that are playing in like the top, top, top level. And like you say, Denise is one of those. You've got Katie McCabe at Arsenal. But I think Ireland's probably kind of a good comparison to England in terms of they went out and hired a very experienced coach in, in Vera Powell that you know, has been to World Cups and, and been to major tournaments. And, and I'm sure she probably instilled that that sort of mentality on Ireland to get them through that. But I, I, I fully agree with you. Like I know, and we all will, like once the tournament sort of settles in and, and you know, those smaller nations maybe go out in the group stage that we'll all start focusing on the US and England and Germany and France, etc. But I love the fact that, yeah, like you've got Vietnam and, you've got the Philippines and you've got Morocco and you've got Zambia because they're the really interesting stories. And obviously we'll throw a few more in after the playoffs um, next month where there's potentially going to be one or two teams that haven't qualified before because they are the ones we don't know anything about really, you know, and it's not out of ignorance. It's out of probably a lack of visibility, lack of coverage that, you know, we don't know much about Vietnam's team. We don't know much about Morocco and, the Philippines and things like that. We know a little bit about Zambia, obviously, because they were at the the Olympic Games um, in Tokyo. And obviously here, yeah, we know a lot about Ireland. But like Haiti, like Haiti's fascinating to me. And, you, you know, what they did in, in CONCACAF, um, you know. How well Mexico. they played against the US yeah, and like, then beating Mexico. The young players they've got in Europe at the moment, obviously Melchie de Mornay is going to Lyon in the summer and she's, you know, an incredible young talent and I'm going to be watching very closely because Haiti's playoff group is is what will go into England's group. So there's a little 
slight biased part of me because I've been doing quite a bit of research on Haiti lately and, and their team and, and their country, and I'd quite be a little bit fascinated if they landed in and we had an England v Haiti matchup. Um, but yeah, they're the stories that that you love, and and I, and I I like that it's happened sort of organically. We haven't forced it and gone to like forty eight teams like the next men's world cup is <laughs> a little bit stupid, but. Like they, they've earned it. Like they haven't been handed. The, you know, they've invested in it. They, they've put the effort in um, to invest in their national teams. You know, the Philippines obviously going out again, hiring a, a very experienced head coach in in yes. You know, it was the Australia head coach for a long time, and you reap the rewards of what you put in in women's football. The US has seen that, England's seen that to a very different level, obviously, but. You know, none of them have been handed it. They've all earned their opportunity to be there. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm as excited and interested to see all these new players and new teams that we don't really know much about in the mainstream um, as I am, you know, the top nations. Well, last question for you, Rich. Um, thoughts on, on the playoff tournament next month? This is the first time that FIFA has done this. Instead of pairing the final teams, you know, doing intercontinental playoffs instead taking the 10 last teams, putting them in three groups and the winner of each group goes on to the world cup. And we already know which group they'll go into. Um, Mm. So Portugal's the only European team, right? Yeah. 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 And so it's, I should remember this. It's, it's Thailand, Cameroon, play and the winner of that plays Portugal and the winner of that goes into the U S group. And then for going into England, it's what Haiti versus. So we have Haiti versus Senegal. And then the winners of that play Chile and the winners of that going to go into England's group. And then, yeah, the other one's a bit more complicated because there's. Because it's four. So they actually have real semifinals and it's what, like Panama, it's group. I call it Group P. I don't call yeah. it Group C. I call it Group P because you have Panama, <laughs> Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, and then Chinese Taipei. Taipei. Yeah, what's well, got a P? They filled it a little bit, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's essential. If you forget who's in it, just remember they all begin with P, except. <laughs> and I so want to be in New Zealand next week, next month for that week of just like all those games are being played within you know like a ninety-minute drive. Um, over the span of a week, right? And New Zealand and Ar- Argentina are going down there to, to get some friendlies as well. So the teams that lose the first game still get to stay and play a friendly. So uh, that's that's my fantasy. I don't think it's going to happen. I think, you know, it's going to be all about traveling to uh, Australia this summer. But If uh, I lost a World Cup playoff, I would want to be straight out of there. I would not want to play a friendly. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure they were just trying to justify to these oh, no, national I, I, teams. I, I, yeah, I completely get that, but I just want to yeah. get straight out of it. Yeah, like, can I go home? Thanks. Yeah. Well, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, you know, good luck with that minus one degree weather over there. Um, not, not jealous of that at all. And I hope to see you this summer down under. Hopefully. Hopefully, um, I'll be. It's a very expensive trip for everybody, but uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, there'll be a lot of people uh, in Australia and obviously New Zealand.
right time to wrap it up at the back four. First and very foremost, so psyched to hear uh, via the Wall Street Journal that San Jose and Utah will be the two clubs to join NWSL beginning with the 2024 season. So next year, we will be up to 14 teams. Also, uh, you know, from Wall Street Journal, they said that Boston is set to return to the league at some point as well. So with San Jose returning to women's pro soccer, that means that San Jose, Boston, and D.C. are the three cities to participate in all three editions of American women's pro soccer. Next, we've got She Believes coming up pretty quick. Uh, The U.S. women kick off February 18th in Orlando facing Canada. Uh, The other game will be Brazil versus Japan. Then they head to Nashville, playing on Sunday, February 19th, USA versus Japan, Canada versus Brazil. And then they wrap it up Wednesday, February 22nd in Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas, with USA taking on Brazil, Canada taking on Japan. And if you haven't already discovered my Keeper Notes Woso calendar, uh, she believes in many other tournaments, including, of course, the Women's World Cup, international friendlies, the draft, college cup, uh, the regular season, etc. Those are all on this Woso Google calendar. So just go to keepernotes.com, click on Wosopedia, and the calendar will be linked there. And last, it's time to pre-order the next Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac. It's in production right now. Hope to be going to press mid-February, or probably more like late February, let's say. Uh, but my plan is to ship Uh, by March 20th, so people will have the almanacs before the regular season of NWSL kicks off on March 25th. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Appreciate everyone who listens, talks about it, likes it, shares it, tweets about it, etc. And of course, many thanks to Sean, my producer, and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's out.